We're about helping people find and follow Jesus. That is the sole reason we exist. We want people to come and know Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, as their Savior. Because if you didn't know this, he is God. He's God. And the, the story of Christmas is when God came, came to this earth. And Easter is when God died for mankind. And then he rose again. Why? Because we're sinners. And so that, we're going to continue on our series. We've been calling this series, How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. And the truth is, we're not good. There's nothing good in us. The Bible says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We are all wretched sinners. But that's why God had to come. And he had to die in our place. And the book of Romans is about the imputed righteousness of Christ. That we are absolutely spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing good in us. And when we place our faith in Jesus, who is God, that died on the cross for our sins, his righteousness is imputed to us. And that and that alone makes us fit for heaven. It's not because we're good, because we're not, but that he is good. So if you brought your Bibles, open to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. We'll have the, the text up on the screen for you if, you if you don't, but there's also a Bible somewhere around. Helps to have, have a Bible there, so you know it's not just me making this up. But um, open your Bibles, Romans 12, a sermon I'm calling The Marks of a True Christian. You know, if I asked you, hey, define the word love, I, I bet for the most part, most of us would have a definition of love that would be just some ooey-gooey emotion. Because we, we say things like, oh, I love them so much. I just love them so much. I can hardly stand it. I love them so much, right? That's what we, we use. But when the Bible uses the word love, it's not an adjective, okay? It's a verb, you remember grammar from back when you're in grade school? I mean, probably most of you, I'm trying to forget that part of my life. But the difference between a verb and an adjective are, are very significant. Because a verb is a word that describes action. It describes a state. It's occurrence. That's what a verb is. Where an adjective, it modifies a noun. Person, place, or thing. The adjective modifies a noun. So when we come to Romans chapter 12... In the book of Romans, Paul is going to give us some direction. And the direction we're given can be summed up by that word, love. If you remember Romans chapter 1, all the way to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, was about how wicked we are. How we are not good people. We are wicked at our very core. And then Romans chapter 3 to verse 21, all the way to the end of chapter 11, is all about what God has done despite of who we are. Sinners. Even though we are wicked at our core, God still loves us and is willing to work in our lives despite of how wicked we are. And so then we come to Romans chapter 12. And I called Romans chapter 12 the graduation chapter. If you understand Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11, it's time to do something with what that stuff you know. Christianity isn't just religion where you come and you check mark the box and I came to church, I sang some songs, I dropped some money in a plate. No, that's not Christianity. Christianity is where we actually live out these things that we have learned that God has revealed to us in his Bible And since he's revealed what he's revealed to us, the truth of the gospel, in Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, now it's time to get to work. It's time to start implementing the things that we know. And so in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is all about the will of God. What does God want for your life? He wants your life to be a living sacrifice where you're you're on the altar, you're giving all of yourself to him. Then verses 3 through 8 of Romans chapter 12 was about what you're 
doing, how you're living your life, how you're trying to pour your life out into others. Well, now we come to Romans chapter 12, verse 9. And really, this is a continuation of what Paul had just said. And I think if we really boil down what we're going to read today, there is three genuine marks of a Christian. There's 30 different ways this plays out. We're going to read them all in this, this text. We're not going to break them down necessarily, all 30 of them. But I think they can really be lumped into three big categories. Paul is going to need to begin talking about how Christians treat other Christians. If you remember back in Romans chapter 8, Paul had mentioned how there's this been an adoption that has taken place. What, what, what happened was that, that a person was a non-believer. They didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't have faith in Jesus. And then one day their, their eyes opened to the glory of the gospel, how awesome Jesus is, how wicked we are, and then place saving faith in what Jesus did on the cross. And when you do that, the Bible says you are adopted into God's family. Well, as family, there are certain ways that we are to treat other members of the family. With that, let's read in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. The word of God says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulations, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Here's my first point for us this morning. Point number one, a Christian will love those that are in God's family. Right off the bat, right off the get-go, Paul says love. That our love should be genuine. And that love that Paul uses there is the Greek word agape. Okay? This is what I think Paul is saying. He's saying, don't fake it. Don't be a fake Christian. That's what he's saying. Well, in case you didn't know, in the Greek language, there are several different words that we translate in English as love. And and, and if you were to translate English back into Greek, there's a lot of times where we use love that just doesn't make sense in the Greek. Because we say things like, man, I love pizza. That pizza was the best pizza I've ever... I just love pizza. Kind of like I was jonesing over those donuts in the other room, right? Well, then I would turn around and we would say things like, I love my kids. I just love my kids so much. Well, do I love pizza in the same way I love my kids? That doesn't make any logical sense. And we, have, we wonder why people have a hard time learning the English language, right? When Paul uses that word here, that word love, it's the word agape, Agape means a self-sacrificial love. It means to love somebody with no qualifiers. It means to love somebody and expect absolutely nothing in return. Well, so far in the book of Romans, every time Paul has used the word agape, he's referring to the way that God loves us. Okay? So this right here, what we read in Romans chapter 12, is the first time that Paul uses the word agape, and he's using it to describe how we are to love others. Why? Because agape love is the gold standard for God's love. When Jesus was, was talking to his disciples, how did Jesus say that, he, that people would know, the world would know that, that, that we, we are followers of, of his? He said, by the way, we agape one another. Like, like I said earlier, there's many words that we translate as love. For example, there's the, there's the Greek word eros. 
Eros is the, w- the word we get erotic from. Okay, it, it, It's a word that means to grab at, to grasp at. It's a very physical love. It brings out the idea of a self-satisfaction. Almost slipped up on that word. Almost created a new English word there. Don't do that. But I would think, think of the word lust. Lust is a good word to really to paint the picture of eros. There's another word translated as love, which is phileo. It's a, it's a friendship love. That's why the town of Philadelphia is called the town of city of brotherly love. The same town that threw snowballs at Santa Claus at a football game. Yeah, the real loving, right? Well, there's a third word, and it's the word storge. Storge is family love. It describes the way I love my grandmother, you know, my aunt and uncle. That's what storge is. But then there's the word agape. That's the word that Paul used here. And like I said earlier, it means to love somebody and expect absolutely nothing in return. And remember, this is a verb, okay? And verb means action. So when doing this action, we, this very positive action, we should do it for others and expect absolutely nothing in return. And so what Paul is saying here, he's saying you are to agape one another. Agape, love them in your action and expect nothing in return. And he says, and it should be genuine. The word genuine is the word we get our word hypocrite from. You know what that means? Well, back in the Greek world, uh, they didn't have TV. They didn't have Netflix or Hulu. They didn't have all that to entertain themselves, but they did have the theater, right? And at the theater, they didn't have multiple actors. They had one, maybe two actors that would play the parts of, of, of everybody in the theater. What they would do is they'd come out with a bunch of masks. And they would hold one mask up. It was just a mask on a stick. And they would say their words, their lines. And then they would switch out to another mask. And that let the audience know that there's another character that's speaking here. And you know what they called that person? They called him a hypocrite. Because they wore many masks. Paul is saying in this text that our agape of our fellowship, uh, uh, when, we're, when we're loving our fellow brother and sister in Christ, don't love them like a hypocrite. He's saying, don't two-face it. Don't, don't, love them and really mean that. L- love them with the genuine love. That's what he's saying. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, love them without a mask. Not the kind of love where you go and you say something real nice and you give them a sweet compliment and then they leave and you stab in the back with some kind of gossip. That's fake love. That's, that's where you're loving wearing a mask, right? Church, the family of God should never be a stage that is filled with fake love. But sadly, that describes far too many Christians where they say they love others in their words, but in their actions, they prove that they're playing the part of the hypocrite. A man by the name of Jesse Scott, he said this, quote, hypocrite gets offended by truth. I came across another um, quote, and it was anonymous. I don't know who said this, but they said, quote, a hypocrite is one who sets a good example only when he has an audience. One more, a comedian from way back when, Tennessee Williams, says the only thing worse than a liar is a liar that's a hypocrite. You want to know one of the biggest examples, the greatest examples of a fake, agape, a hypocritical love in the Bible? Don't look any further than Judas Iscariot. Judas was one of Jesus' best friends. He was with Jesus for three years. He heard every sermon. He saw all the miracles. I mean, he saw blind men get their eyes. 
He saw multitudes of people fed with the little boy's sack lunch. But in the end, he sold Jesus down the river for pocket change. Why? Because his love was fake. We are to love like Judas. It is to be genuine. We are to love other Christians with a genuine love. And then Paul turns right around and he says, abhor what is evil. The word abhor, it means to hate. Not just hate, but to strongly hate. And there's some that say, well, Christians shouldn't hate anything. It's just to be love all the time. Just love everybody. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says we are to hate, abhor, strongly hate what is evil. So right on the heels, when Paul commands us to agape love, he says that we are to to hate what is evil. You want to know why Paul says this? Because part of genuine love is a genuine hatred. If, if, if we are to love, we have to hate what is evil. God is a God of love, but there are things that God hates. Did you know God? there's some things that God hates? The Bible spells this out for it. Read in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. The word of God says there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that, are, that make haste to run to evil, a false witness that breathes out lies, and one who soars discord among brothers. I'll say it like this. God hates those things that hurts his creation. God hates lying. God hates murder. God hates evil. God hates someone that's making Christians hate on each other. God hates that. There's one thing that that really, really hurts a believer, and that's tolerance. You know what hurts us more than intolerance? It's tolerance. Because today, the most hurtful thing in the modern Christian church is tolerance. There's so much sin in the church, and the church tolerates it. Why? Because it's easier. It's just easier to turn a blind eye to that, and it shouldn't be that way, because the church is to abhor what is evil. I had somebody tell me once, well, a Christian should never debate truth with anybody. I I replied with saying, well, you wouldn't get along very well with Jesus or or the, the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul rebuked the church in Corinth because they tolerated immorality. Paul rebuked the church in Galatia because they tolerated legalism. Jesus, he he rebuked the church in Thyatira saying, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Jesus says, I have this against you. You tolerate that stuff. Don't tolerate that stuff, church. That's what Jesus said. When a church tolerates evil, it's, it's cancer that eats the body from the inside out. So Paul says there's some things we should hate. That's strong words. We should hate what is evil. We should hate anything that hurts human beings. We hate that stuff. But instead, what should we do? Paul says, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another showing honor. And then Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Here's what I'll say to that. I'll translate this to the new pastor John translation. Don't be a slacker. That's what Paul is saying. Don't be a slacker. Not only do everything that you got, but do it like right now. 
People are dying and going to hell in our own city. We need to show this love that Paul speaks of. So they come to know Christ. They come to see the beauty of Jesus. Do it and do it like now. And here's one thing I'll say. Wait, we can, we can love agape, love your fellow believer. Encourage them. Encourage them. That's pretty simple, right? I want to think I don't know about you, but the truth is I do know about you because in a sense we're all the same. Okay, there's times where like your Christian life is going so well. You're riding on a spiritual high. Everything's just going great. It's just clicking bright. And then all of a sudden everything just turns on a dime. That happens for believers all the time, right? The spiritual rug gets pulled out from underneath you and you're like laying face down on the ground. You don't feel like you can get up in the morning. That happens to you, right? Well, no, that happens to your fellow believer in Christ. So we need to be the voice of encouragement in, in all believers' life, like all the time, like right now. I have a good friend of mine that I jokingly refer to him. I call him Barnabas. Because if you meet this guy, he is the nicest guy in the world. Not only a nice guy, but he's going to say something nice about you every time he, he, he sees you. If you don't know who Barnabas is in the book of Acts, Paul had a buddy named, named Barnabas. Well, that's not his name. That's his nickname. Barnabas means the son of encouragement. Well, my Barnabas, his real name is John. Man, he's always trying to encourage you. And really, this should be all of us. Because living the Christian life, it's not a walk in the park. Not everything's going to go great all the time. Things are going to come up, and you're going to find yourself face down on, on the ground. And so every single one of us, we need a Barnabas in our life. But you know what else we need? We need to be a Barnabas to somebody else. You know, I know a lot of Christians, they have this zeal for learning the Bible. I want to go to church. I want to be in this Bible study. I just want to fill my head with all this, this Bible knowledge. And we should do that. But we should take what we've learned and, and use it with zeal in serving the Lord. And let me just say one way you can do that, like right now, you don't need any training. Be an encouragement to some other Christian. So here's what I want you to see. The very first expression of Christian love among of God's people is where we love our fellow believers. That's step one, because if we don't get that right, what we're going to be called to do in these coming verses is way harder. So if you can't do this, you have no chance of getting the next one right. So let's start by loving the family of God. And look what we're called to do next. Look in verse 14 of Romans chapter 12. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Jump down to verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's my second point for this morning. Point number two, a Christian will bless those who are not in God's family. A Christian is to be a blessing to somebody who's not even a Christian, right? 
So Paul's making a pivot here. He was talking about how we love other Christians and immediately turns around and just says how we're to love those who are not in God's family. Now remember, Paul writes this book to believers in Rome. And we say Rome is not exactly friendly to Christians in the year 57 AD. There's a madman that is ruling the known world at this time. His name is Nero. Nero is the Caesar, and, and, and to, to the, the world at that time, Caesar is supposed to be like a, a god, that you worship that god. He's not a god. He's just a man. But this man who thought he was God, what he would do, he would grab Christians, he would dip them in tar, and then he would either tie them to a stake or impale them on that stake, and then light them on fire so they would be human candles to light his garden at night. This is a guy that that burned much of the city of Rome and then blamed it on the Christians to to gain sympathy with with the Roman citizens. That's just the tip of the iceberg to how wicked Nero was. How How he treated Christians was brutal. And to this, Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Live in harmony with one another. You're probably thinking, how? How in the world do I I show love to somebody that's persecuted me like that? Well, I want to to look at this again. And I think what Paul does is he he shows a a couple different ways that we can do this here. And he uses this as a comparative approach. Paul says, don't do this, but instead do that. And he does this four times in rapid succession. Read Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So number one, don't curse, but instead bless. Verse 17, repay no one with evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So the second thing, don't get even. That's what what he said. But instead, do what's honorable. Instead, verse 19, he said, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. The third way, don't seek revenge, leave it in God's hands. Then 21, verse 21, he says, do not overcome evil, do not come over, uh, overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we don't beat them by doing evil, we instead beat them by doing good. In other words, our love should be independent of our treatment we receive for others. That's what Paul is saying there. So they might curse, but instead we will bless. They might hate, but instead we will love. They might avenge, but instead we will not. Does this sound a little too good to be true? Let's be honest here. You're like, okay, that sounds more like the Boy Scout handbook motto thing there. It's just simply, it's not possible. You see, this is impossible to do in and of yourself. Notice the PS I said there. Because... In and of yourself, this is straight up impossible to do. This is something that we're going to need to be empowered by God. If we're going to actually go through this, what Paul just said we're to do, I'm going to need God to do it through me because just simply, I can't do this, God. Well, here's the good news. You're already empowered. God is already, if you're a believer, God has already done everything that you need to, that needs to be done for you to be able to do what you're being commanded to do here in Romans chapter 12. Let's, let's go back earlier in Romans. Read with me what Paul's already said in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Paul's already said God's love, that's that agape, God's agape love has already been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. 
So what happens is God pours his love into our hearts and that just, it never stops. He's constantly loving us and pouring his love into us. And you know why he does that? So we'll pour that love out into others. Why does God constantly pour his love into you? It's so you'll pour it out into somebody else. And remember, love is, an act, is a verb, action. What are you doing to show God's love? You see, let me just say, sometimes there are certain people that to love them is kind of like cuddling with a porcupine. It's just hard to do, right? You know anybody like that? You don't have to answer. I know the answer is yes. Let me ask you this question. Do you think the world we live in is divided today? Don't answer that. <laughs> I, know, I know the answer, right? We don't have to debate if our world's divided. Our own country's divided. What's going to change that? The answer is the love of God. And so then now let me ask, how does God, the creator God that came and died for us, how is his love manifested to the world? It's manifested through you. It's manifested through me. That we would go out and we would love those that maybe others would say are absolutely unlovable so that they would see the love of God. Let me, let me, start, let me change the turn here for a minute. Let me ask you this question. Who, would, who do you need to stop hating? Pause for dramatic effect. No, really, who do you need to stop hating? Is it, it, is, is it a, a certain someone? Is it a group of people? Who, who is it that if their name is mentioned, that your blood begins to boil? That every time you hear their name, you start to grit your teeth? You don't have to ask, answer, but I know it's, some, it's somebody, right? Let's start by loving them. Let's start by loving them. And remember, love is a verb. Now, I can say something like that, and you're sitting there thinking, I need some specific ways, Pastor John. You have to spell this out for me because I, I, I need to know how to do this. Well, fortunately, Paul tells us. Because if we say, hey, love those that hate you, go, I mean, go love them, you're going to want some specific ways. Well, let's, let's look at that. Look at the verse we skipped. Back up to Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Here's my third point. Point number three, a Christian will be a peacemaker. Do you know what one of the biggest problems in our world today? The biggest problem we have going on in the world today is just there's this lack of sympathy, right? How often do we hear of a problem? We see something going on and we just like, don't just pass on by. We see suffering, we see hurt, and so often we'll just pass on by. I got got things to do, right? Don't do that. Often we just walk on by and, and act like nothing's going on. Is that what Jesus did? That's not what he did, right? What's the shortest verse in the New Testament? Jesus wept, right? It's John 11, verse 35. Well, do you have to think yourself, well, what's the context that was going on that made Jesus weep? Well, he had a friend by the name of Lazarus. Lazarus died. And it wasn't the, I would argue it wasn't Lazarus' death that caused Jesus to weep, but because he could have, he could have stopped that at any moment if he, if he wanted to. But when he got to Lazarus' house, his family was going nuts with their grief. I mean, they were inconsolable. And Jesus saw that and, and that caused him to weep. Why? Because Jesus had sympathy for those who were hurting. If Jesus had sympathy for those who were hurting, why can't we? 
Now, let me ask you this question. Is it easier to weep with those who weep or to rejoice with those who rejoice? I would argue it's easier to weep with those who weep because that becomes more natural to us. Unless you're some kind of sociopath, right? Because a sociopath can look at somebody who's deeply hurting and not even bat an eye. But everybody else, it comes more natural to weep with those who weep. And I'd argue it's much more difficult for us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Why? Because we're still sinners. We still have a sinful nature in us. And so what happens is we see something, it's good, it happens to somebody else. We get jealous, right? Somebody gets a promotion at work and you didn't get that promotion at work and you get jealous. Somebody gets a new car, you, you want a new car, you don't have a new car, so somebody else gets a new car and that makes you jealous. Or maybe somebody takes this amazing trip and man, you want to go on that trip, you don't get to go on that trip and that makes you jealous. And it's through grit teeth that we congratulate somebody. Oh, congratulations, right? That's what we do. Don't do that. Don't do that. We have to begin by sympathizing. That's where it starts, sympathizing with those who are hurting. But then you know what? It has to go beyond that. Then you have to synchronize. You have to actually come together, right? Look what Paul says in verse 18 of Romans chapter 12. Paul says, if possible, so far it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let me say, I am so happy that verse 18 is here. I am just overjoyed that verse 18. He says, if possible, if possible, So far, it depends on you live peaceably with all. One thing I love about that, because that tells us sometimes it's not possible. Some people don't want to get along with you, right? Well, if we're going to synchronize with somebody, that takes two parties. And if somebody's going, no, I don't want to, that means it's not going to happen. Because some people want the worst from you. Some people, there's no making nice with, because no matter what you do, they're not going to make nice. But Paul says, as much as it depends on you, get alone. So I said a Christian will be a peacemaker. Here, there's some things it takes to be a peacemaker. Number one, you initiate. You initiate. Paul says, so as much as it depends on you. Don't be the one that sits there and says, well, I'll make peace if they come to me. They hurt me, so they're going to have to come to me, and they're going to have to apologize. And if they don't do that, well, then we're not going to make nice. No, don't do that. Jesus said in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go, tell him his fault. You know what Jesus didn't say? Jesus didn't say, well, if somebody upsets you, you sit there for three years and stew on what happened, right? That's not what Jesus said. Nor did Jesus say, hey, you tell everybody in the world what they did to you, but the person that did that. No, you go, you reach out, and you tell them. That's what you're supposed to do. So number one, you initiate. But there's a second qualification. Okay? Both parties have to want to make up. Right? Sometimes one party doesn't want to make up. Because some people like chaos. Some people enjoy conflict. You're like, that's sick. I know. But sometimes people grew up in a household where it's just chaos all the time. And so chaos feels normal. And if there's no chaos, then they don't feel normal. So rather than not feeling normal, they'll create chaos if they don't have it. That's why Paul says, if possible. Because sometimes, quite frankly, it's not possible. But you initiate, you go, you meet, you sit, and you talk. Maybe they'll reciprocate. Maybe they won't. 
Maybe they'll disengage. Maybe they'll make life miserable for you. But as much as it depends on you, live peaceably, right? You're only responsible for your motives. You're only responsible for your heart. You're not in control of their response, right? Never let the inability to live at peace with others be because of something you failed to do. Let me dig just a little bit deeper because I feel like if I don't say this, I'll leave you hanging. But there's a couple specific ways that we can live this out. Read verse 19 again. Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. That's what he says, right? Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So whose place are, are we to leave the wrath to? God's wrath. Here's one thing I've discovered. God is so much better at vengeance than I am. Let me tell you a story. It happened a number of years ago. And I'm just telling you the story because I need you to know, I'm like you. I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. I fall. I sin. And there was an incident that happened a number of years ago where somebody deeply hurt somebody I love. And this isn't all they they were just mean to somebody. No, they hurt them to the nth degree. And then I had to be in the same room with this individual. And I'm still a man. And I'm still a sinner that loves somebody that's hurt by this person. And I'm thinking to myself, if I get my hands on this guy, I'll kill him. I'll choke the life out of him right here in front of God and everybody. But then I had to grab myself. No, John, you're not going to do that. That will not only destroy your family, it will send you to jail to ruin you. You're not going to do that. So I made up my mind, I'm not going to do that. But the problem is I can't quit thinking about it. And I'm stewing that over and I'm running that tape in my mind over and over and over again. And I can't, and I know as a pastor, I'm the one that counsels you on these things. I can't be thinking like that. I got to stop. I went to the gym. I go to the gym and I'm going to work out and I'm going to, I'm going to work out my frustration through exhaustion. And I'm in there in the gym and I'm just lifting weights and I'm like, and it's only making it worse because now I have heavy objects in my hand. I want to hurt somebody. By the grace of God, by the province of God, a good friend of mine just happened to be in the gym that day. He's a combat Marine. That spent time in Iraq. And he's seen some stuff and some experienced some stuff. He knows exactly what I'm dealing with in this situation. So I went to him and I gave him the details that I'm not giving you. And he said this, and I quote, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, thus saith the Lord. And he turned and he walked away. That's all he said. Now I go back to where I'm working out and I'm playing that over and over. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, thus saith the Lord. He's quoting Romans chapter 12, verse 19. I know what he's doing. And I'm thinking about that verse. And I'm thinking about that verse. And it hits me like a ton of bricks. Who can hurt this man more than me? God can. God can exact vengeance way better. Anything that I could do to him, not even going to compare to what God can do. Right? Maybe God will. God can and maybe someday do exactly that. But then it also struck me. Or maybe God can change him. Maybe God can forgive him and change his heart. 
You see, the sovereign God of the universe can and will either save this man by his grace or send this man to eternal hell separated from him where he'll burn for day and night for all eternity. But in the end of ends, that's between him and God. And honestly, in that moment, it's like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. Like God literally took an 800-pound weight, just took it off my bat and said, John, you're not meant to carry that. And for me to forgive this guy and saying, you know, I'm going to forgive you. And by me forgiving you, that means whatever comes your way, that's between you and God. And you know what happens now? I can sleep at night. Maybe he sees the beauty of our Savior Jesus and gets saved. Maybe he doesn't, but that's not up to me. And what I experienced in that moment is exactly what we're talking about here in Romans chapter 12. It's God saying, let me handle that. You're not meant to carry that load. You know what is my job? My job is to, if he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Because that's going to be like heaping hot coals on his head. And I know most of us, I'd rather heap the real hot coals on his head than do that, right? I know that's because you're like me. But God's saying, let me do it. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, You've heard it, you have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, what does Jesus say we're to do? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You know what? I think we can do that. We, we can live that verse out. Why? Because one, Jesus said it. But then two, Jesus did it. Think back to the cross. At the cross, Jesus is stretched out on the cross and they're hammering nails into his wrists and to his feet. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus didn't say, I'll see you guys in three days, right? He didn't say that. He prayed for the men that were murdering him. Let me give you one more reason. We can do it because Jesus said it. We can do it because Jesus did it. But the third reason, people notice when you do that. People don't naturally do what we're talking about here. And when you do that, the unbelieving world's going to notice. That's why Paul, Paul said, here's your job. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Paul said that because people don't do that. And when you do that, the lost world notices. So what is our motivation to actually do this? It's the gospel. Somebody might get saved. Maybe it's not the person you're feeding. Maybe it's not the person you're giving a drink to. Maybe it's somebody else that's watching from the outside. Maybe they're the ones that get saved. And I know you're thinking, I need some more motivation, Pastor John, because what Paul is talking here, I can't do it because I've been doing this job long enough. I've sat in counseling sessions after counseling session after counseling sessions, and I know the instance of hurt runs so deep. One of you knows the pain I'm talking about. Let me give you one last reason why you need to forgive. Because it's the best thing for you. It has nothing to do with them. You forgiving them is all about you being well. Because when you harbor resentment against somebody, it hurts you. You're the one that's not sleeping at night. You're the one that's having heart palpitations every time their name is mentioned. You're the one that's going to die early because you won't forgive them. But hear me on this. Forgiveness does not mean that you let them back into your life. That is not biblical forgiveness. That is reconciliation. It takes much more. 
Forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, is not where you keep putting yourself back in that same place, but it's where you allow God to deal with them for you. That's biblical forgiveness. Let God fight that fight. I read this written by Corey Tinboom. If you don't know who she is, you really need to know who she is. Because she was a gal that her family hid Jews during Nazi Germany. They were found. They were put in a concentration camp. Her sister died in those concentration camps. She said this, quote, Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Ooh. Let me read that again because I think she probably knows a little something about this that we might not. Forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. So I want to say something to maybe somebody here that knows that's struggling with exactly what we're talking about. I know you've been hurt. And then you guard your heart because you've been hurt. And you, do, you put these walls up, you isolate, you don't let people in because it seems like every time you let somebody in, they, you just get burned. And so you get hurt, you isolate, you're living in prison. That means you don't want to be vulnerable to anybody. If that's you, come to Jesus. Because Jesus will not only help you with that load that you're doing, he's going to take that from you. He's going to carry that load for you. But let me tell you about the biggest load. That we are never meant to carry. That's the weight of our sin. See, we are all sinners. Exactly what the Bible says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And our sin, it separates us from a holy, perfect God. Meaning we're all going to hell. But God didn't want that. So God robed himself in flesh. And he came. His name's Jesus. And he went to the cross. Why? For sinners like you and me. And he died. He paid for the sins of mankind, buried in a tomb, rose again on the third day. And the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you've never called out to Jesus, you can do that in a moment. Know that Jesus wants you. He, he died for you and he wants this relationship with you. He's never going to hurt you. And he's, he made you and he will carry those loads for you. But you have to call out to him. You have to say something like, dear Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And my sin separates me from you. But you love me so much, you died. Those nails in your wrist, they were for me. Lord, those nails in your feet, feet, it was for me. You gave your life. Nobody took it. It was for a sinner like me. Save me of my sins. I pray this in the perfect name of Christ. Amen.